Have you ever wondered what your therapist has figured out about life's big questions? I know I have. Developing Meaning is a show about psychiatry and the meaning of life. I, your host, Dr. Dirk Winter, am an adult and child psychiatrist, developmental biologist, amateur mycologist, and meaning seeker. And I invite you along on my journey towards meaning and purpose as I speak with psychiatrists, clinicians, and other types of healers about what our clinical experiences teach us about meaning and how to build this into our lives. Many of the ideas we discuss are unconventional, unproven, and at the fringes of our field. This show is not affiliated with any institutions and is not meant to be clinical advice. It's meant to be fun and thought-provoking, especially for left-brained, talky-thinky clinicians like me, who have recently become interested in right-brained feeling, and body-based treatment approaches like IFS, EMDR, hypnosis, and psychedelics, just to name a few. Come along. I think you'll enjoy this. So today, I'm really excited to present to you an interview with Dr. Jean Marmoreo, who is a family doctor who was one of the first practitioners of MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying in Canada. She is a super interesting person. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her bio. And I met her while I was doing my ketamine training at the Menla Retreat this past spring, uh, which is a retreat in the Catskills where a bunch of clinicians learned how to deliver ketamine-assisted therapy. And I got to know her there. You'll get to know her here. She's amazing. And uh, I think it's fitting to start a show about meaning with an expert in end-of-life and dying, which Jean Mario definitely is. Um, she is a force of nature. Let me just tell you a little bit about her before we get into this interview. So, Jean, this is taken from her bio. She is a doctor, a writer, athlete, advocate, and adventurer. She's a family physician practicing in downtown Toronto and is also one of Canada's first practitioners of MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying. She is a fellow of the Canadian College of Family Physicians and is affiliated with Women's College Hospital and a lecturer in family practice uh, in the Department of Family Practice at University of Toronto School of Medicine. She graduated in 1964 from Hamilton, Ontario with a degree in nursing and became head nurse at the Clark Institute of Psychiatry in Toronto, uh, which is the predecessor of the uh, Center for Addiction and Mental Health there. She then had a change and decided she had to become a, a medical doctor, an MD, and in 1974 graduated with the highest marks in her class in clinical practice from the University of Toronto School of Medicine, which is the largest medical school in North America. She was a specialist in midlife medicine and wrote a book on the New Middle Ages, Women in Midlife and then became an expert in end-of-life and felt moved when the Supreme Court in Canada voted 9-0, to zero, I believe this is in 2016, to allow people to decide 
to have medical help ending their life in cer- uh, under certain conditions. So she was she she went under an intensive training, learning about end of life issues, palliative care, and also became one of the first practitioners of MAID. And aside from this, she is an amazing athlete. She is a marathon runner who's won her age group at the Boston Marathon, which she's run nine times. She's also kayaked around the island of Manhattan. And when I was emailing her to get her on this show, she was actually uh, kayaking around Manhattan again. And so she's, she's uh, hiked a thousand miles on the Appalachian Trail. She's done many, many amazing things, but she had never taken psychedelics for the ketamine training that we did, which is where I met her. So this is somebody that I had a personal connection with at the Menla training, which was a uh, training in how to use ketamine um, for different types of clinicians. And I uh, really was impressed meeting her there, reading her book, which I highly recommend, The Last Doctor. And without further ado, I want to present to you uh, just uh, the middle part of our interview. We, I just want to say that before this part of the interview, we had a, a great conversation also about growing up on a farm, one of three girls, and I... Uh, just her, her, her amazing story into, uh, you know, from, from farming to nursing to family medicine to, to uh, going up into the northernmost territories and, and doing wilderness medicine. But I just want to get into sort of the thick of it. And, and I'm starting with, with a question that was really on my mind at the beginning. But um, I want to ask her what's, what it's like. To, to be there uh, at this end of life moment. And that's how we start, and we, we get into a lot of stuff from there. So enjoy this interview. I know I did. Um, we'll get right into it. What was it like then when you the first time that you actually performed made how what, oh, did, what did it feel it like a, how it did it a, feel yeah, different that was a, it was an amazing story because um the legislation came into effect um uh, in june of 2016 and in july i got a call from a psychiatrist um and he was a psychiatrist at a hospital and he wanted me to come and assess one of the patients on the psychiatric unit i thought Oh, here we go. <laughs> I thought, a psychiatric patient. Okay. Um, but I went out, um, and that's where I met Joe. So, I mean, Joe was my first. And so Joe is part of the, part of the story of how, how I began my career doing MAID uh, and what it was to become involved with a hospital um, who, by definition, uh, were conscientious objectors, but but Joe had made his case to the board, and they were objectors because they were Salvation Army hospital based. Um, and what were what were his medical issues? That- he he basically um, he had basically attempted suicide, 
seriously attempted suicide with a with an insulin overdose. He was a diabetic, and he he knew what he was about to do. Uh, he had buried his mom, and then he had buried his cat, um, and he had he had a neurodegenerative disease. He had um, he had a, an amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, very slowly progressing, not a not a rapid one. But he had attempted suicide, which is what got him into the psychiatric unit. And they had actually attempted to transfer him into a geriatric unit while he was awaiting long-term care. And he was assaulted by one of the patients on that floor, who was a paranoid man. And they had brought him back to the psychiatric unit because it was safer. And he had lived there across. He had... He had basically lived in a room across from the nursing station for nine months. And in that nine months, he had followed the legislation very carefully. Uh, And once the legislation passed, he made his case to the board. How physically um, impaired was he? He was in a wheelchair. Uh, He needed uh, transferring help to get to the toilet. Uh, He had a... He had a large network of friends, and, and they would come, and they would lift him into the wheelchair and take him out on Saturday so he could get his hair cut, and they could have a beer down the street. But yeah, he was um, he was losing uh, physical strength. He was losing power. He was, and he sure did not want to hang around um, any longer. The minute he knew, he was always asking, asked, had to ask the nurses for help to get to the toilet. He said they're too busy. Their job is not to get me to the toilet, and that was kind of the end for him. You know, I will not tolerate this any longer. Um, but we had we had to basically present him to the entire hospital so that they could actually put together the the kind of groundwork in the hospital, um, so that people who did not want to have anything to do with it. I mean, I'm talking floor cleaners up, nursing staff up. Uh, anybody who did not want to be involved could could vacate the day uh, and not be present. So it was amazing to sort of see uh, on the day that we provide a hot, hot, hot August day, there were 32 people in that room with him. Um, the nurses came, all the nurses who had looked after him on every shift came. So it was really, it was a grand send-off, I have to tell you, and very touching for sure. He got what he wanted. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he had donated his spine and his brain to the to Sunnybrook Hospital. He paid for his own transfer. He had to, They had to transfer his body to Sunnybrook, and he had already paid the $290 for the, for the hearse to take him to Sunnybrook so they could retrieve his brain and his spinal cord. So, yeah, I'm very interested in sort of the, the meaning aspects of it, and this is always sort of a personal question for for everybody but i wonder about you know if i were in that situation or for him at, at that point it seems like life has has the, the meaning is not sufficient to keep going to that that it, it's it feels too bad to to be degenerating to to be having to be taken care of in this way oh yeah um you have to understand his base too. He he had basically been um, a global shoe salesman for Bata, one of the big, big, big successful shoe companies in Canada. Um, 
So he had basically been a man who had kind of covered the globe. He knew leather like nobody else. He was also a fantastic golfer. Uh, and he would do 700 push-ups in a day. He had, I mean, he, this was a very vigorous man. His idea of retiring was to, uh, was to go to the West Indies and set up a kind of a beach shack um, and basically kind of just, just run it and spend every night talking to everybody that, because he was a big talker. He was, he was a, uh, yeah, he was a, he was a real sociable I am here to meet people. You know, people are, are the best thing that you can have. Um, and they're the most interesting. And he stopped doing that um, to care for his mom. So he was his mother's main caregiver. Uh, so he was out there. He was in the Caribbean doing his speech shack and no, came back. He, no, he, no, he was still working when he stopped. Uh, that oh, was okay. His, that he was never his, got to that He that never point. got there. No, his retirement goal was to have that beach shack, but he never got there. So uh, when you realize that this man can't lift himself out of the wheelchair, you know, from, you know, 500 push-ups a day. Um, but it was really the cat, you know, um, when he buried the cat. He buried the cat, you know, unbeknownst to anybody at the foot of his mother's grave. You know, can't, can't be done, but he did it. Um, the cat he got for his mom, but the cat was really his. So when he was at home and this was you know when he was traveling initially and then he would come home the cat was really his cat and then when he stopped working and looked after his mom the cat was really his cat and it was the cat um that would tell him when he was hypoglycemic the cat knew so the cat the cat was very very meaningful for him and when the cat died that was that was the last that was the last of it for him. He had no meaning anymore in terms of why to keep going. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about myself and what would, and, uh, you know, where, where would I make that decision for myself? And, and I feel like I'm, you know, if I can taste things, if I can, you know, eat ice cream, if I can smell a flower, but how how does one then balance that against pain, against losses of relationships, Um, and is there a way to, yeah, how, how does, I guess for me, Losing my mind, losing ability to to sort of think and engage. I, I don't know. I'm I don't know where I where I would fall in in this kind of a situation um, personally for me. But I, I do very much believe in autonomy and and that that is is critical. But um, do, do do you have a clear sense for yourself of what? Yeah. What your own personal criteria for meaning would be? Yeah, it's interesting because um, we, we have to publish an annual report every year on MADE and MADE stats. And so, um, so last year they published the third annual report, which really looked at where MADE has come since 2016, how many deaths have there been. And there have been in Canada now 30,000 deaths um, that have been assisted um, but now what comes out of the stats, and this was really interesting. We knew it, but, but nobody had 
kind of documented it this clearly. When you look at um, the reasons why people choose to have an assisted death, um, people always think it's pain. No, it isn't pain. Um, or the anticipation of pain. That That's really low down on the list of why do people choose to have made what's highest on the list, um, like 59, 60%, is the inability to do meaningful activities, the inability to be able to do meaningful daily activities. And that's really In- closely followed by the inability um, or the need to have somebody doing the care for you. So it's mm. not, it's first is your loss of being able to do meaningful activities, and the second is being dependent on somebody to care for you. And by meaningful them. activities, I assume they're meaning sort of adding value to, to other people, doing something useful. Or what you, yeah, or what you what, value. What it, yeah, what you value. So, I mean, for sure, if, if basically being able to smell the roses, uh, being able to see the sunrise, knowing that you are content, um, even if you basically cannot walk, cannot cook for yourself, cannot shop for yourself, cannot... I mean, that's... Meaningful activities is, is kind of like, what is what is the value of your life? And so the minute when I'm going to people, I mean, because I see this in the elderly for sure, um, their inability to kind of, you know, get out of bed, dress themselves, toilet, get their own breakfast, uh, have a routine... That, that to them hits them right off the bat. You know, I can't do anything anymore. That's really powerful. Yeah. And um, I uh, remember seeing a Ram Das um, l- little documentary of him sort of towards the end of his life after he had a stroke and he couldn't really care for himself and he had caretakers. This was, mm-hmm. he was in Hawaii and they would be very nice to him and bathe him. But he really had sort of this joyful aura of he used to do so much he used to help people and now he has to be taken care of and somehow he was able to to still enjoy that i think probably a large part of that is who he was and he is this you know big influential person and people come to him and so if i'm ram das i can just say oh think about this and and that's meaningful i can i can give value i can give meaning to other people, but um, people who are less, who have had less, you know, acclaim and and, uh, maybe harder personal and more difficult socioeconomic situations, they would, I could see how how that, that, there would just be a a day-to-day burden in that that same situation. uh, And what you're describing um, from, from where he sits, even with a stroke, uh, is he's able to still connect and communicate. Um, and people who have um, increasing disability um, and are more and more homebound and housebound or have more and more physical um, problems, no matter whatever that is, you begin to lose contact. You know, friends will drift away. Um, depending on your age, you will lose your friends and you will be more and more alone. You will be more and more isolated. And yes, the TV going all day may give you noise and interest, but there's no connection. There's no carry forward um, from that for a lot of people. So how many times can you watch Jeopardy um, and and feel that you your meaning in life is there uh, and it's enough for you? 
uh, when you are no longer able to kind of be a kind of a functional independent. It's about that independent um, capacity for people to say, I have agency, I can, I can get out of the house, I can shop for myself. I know I can kind of look after my own money. I know that I can be able to kind of get out the door and down the street and into a transport vehicle or a wheel trans or I can handle the subways in the elevator. It's all of how you live your life. To what extent do you think this is cultural? Um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah. what you're describing is individual. You know, I, I want to be able to do things. That's, that's what makes me a valuable person versus, you know, there, there might be some, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but, but I sort of a more, are we doing enough to, to, to connect with each other? It seems. Oh yeah. But I also think we faced what I think has evolved in, in the kind of a Western culture of where, where families do split, families migrate away. Uh, you don't you don't have the kind of multi generational households, um, where you do have a multi generational household, like you see in the Northwest Territories, um, where you've got grandparents looking after the grandkids and raising them. Uh, there's this missing middle part as well, um, and as you know, and as certainly some Indigenous people will say, this is the fourth generation we're in now of the residential school. So it's not just the, you know, the the father, the daughter, and the grandson. It's basically now four generations of effect um, of kind of what that isolation and what that splinter has been. But if you look at urban centers and if you look at immigrant families, um, that whole multi-generational stacking of people uh, living in one household uh, is gone. So, you know, and I had certainly lots of patients whose parents were living far away, and they were always frantic about, you know, oh my God, what happens when I sort of get the call from the hospital that, you know, my mom's fallen and broken her hip, and i got to leave work, and i got to fly, i got to get out there. I have to then put everything in place because I have to come back. Um, so it's tremendously difficult then. And, and what you're left with at the other end of it, of course, is that more and more care is needed, and more and more isolation is begot. So frantically difficult. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly saw that in the ICU when an elderly person was there and then the family members would show up after not having had connection for a long time and feel like, okay, now I got to do something. Yeah. And yeah. That, that felt then like there were sort of excessive, at times, interventions based on... Guilt. You know, whatever the <laughs> dynamics were. Guilt. Um, <laughs> Guilt and unfinished yeah. business, yeah. I mean, the wonderful yeah. thing about um, helping somebody finish their life on their terms um, is, and I would say that there's no rule book here, uh, how, how it's going to look, uh, who you want to talk to, who may want to talk to you, what needs to be said, what needs to be done, is very often the great surprise and the great gift in families. And it certainly was for Joe. Um, if, and it, I mean, Joe's an example, but it's happened over and over and over again. Joe hadn't talked to his brother in years. Um, they'd had a falling out. Uh, but he, he thought he should inform him. And the minute he did, his brother turned up. His brother showed up. 
Um, I mean, much to Joe's surprise, but it was because his brother had an issue that that really he wanted resolved. And the magic of that kind of interaction happening, uh, where people can kind of resolve those old issues because there's time is short now. Uh, and you really have to kind of come to terms with things. Yeah, I think me, death and time being short, that that's very much what creates meaning in, in a lot of ways. And there's... A, um, you know the Becker denial of death book of uh, saying that our you know that this is our core fear that we avoid, but um, because time is limited, you and I our conversation now is meaningful. We could we don't we can't do infinite amount of things. We are yeah. losing yeah. out on other opportunities by being here together now. So that creates meaning. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, you know, I think people who come close to you know when you know people are are elderly, um, it's still you know people still won't talk like they may not talk again. <laughs> you still, mm-hmm. I think that notion that have the conversations that's meaningful to you because this may be the last time you have it and you don't know that. The difference between that scenario and knowing that somebody is going to die a week Monday. Um, because that's their choice, changes the conversation. I absolutely know it does. It lets people say things that they won't be able to say otherwise, because you can't, in a casual conversation, say, well, you know, you could be dead next week, so I better tell you what I really think about you. Uh, You don't do that. I mean, nobody does that. And you always end up sort of saying, "Did did I say enough to let them know that they were really important to me? You always have that question. Did I? Did they know how much I cared about them? And did they know how much meaning they've given in my life? I mean, those are conversations you don't have until you know you've got eight days. So you felt like you were able to give them more meaning, give them more autonomy, and it felt, with Joe, it sounded like th- that was a very oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. positive feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Over time, as you you go through a number of different cases, I mean, how how did this change over time for you, or did it, it did it not change the the working together with? Yeah, no, it, it has. I mean, it's I, still no, it the same. It's, if anything, it makes me work much harder to kind of bring the family into the picture. Um, I mean, I've I've certainly dealt with people who did not want to involve their family, who would not have their family at the um, at the moment of death, um, but I mean, I work very hard to try and bring the families together, uh, and I and I'm actually and I push a bit too. I know I do, um, you know, because people say no, it's the patient's autonomy. You know, you you've got to you know if they don't want anybody to know if they don't, that's their privilege and you can't interfere with that. That's you know that's not your job. And I say, actually, it kind of is my job um, to kind of really say. You know, it's not about you. <laughs> I mean, it is about you, but sometimes mm-hmm. it isn't about you. It is about what people need to say to you. And it's maybe about what you need to be able to say to them as well. And if you don't, if you don't create that opportunity to have a living wake, um, you know, it is, it is a sad loss for all of us, I think. Because these are 
rare. I mean, when you think about it, four, four to five max percent of a population will ever ask for an assisted death. If you look at the whole population out there, very few people ask for an assisted death. In a living wake is what you describe, where uh, the, the, it's the date of the the maid event, and people are invited, and there's a ceremony. Oh yeah, and you show up in your provide the medical piece of it. <laughs> My bag, yeah. I've got a patient um, who is basically arranging for for her exit next Monday, and um, <laughs> she's in a hospice now. And they're moving her from the hospice to the palliative care unit because they know there's going to be 32 people there and they know there's going to be a lot of noise. And the hospice is really quiet. And, and so they're <laughs> moving her um, into the palliative care unit. Because they can her handle. party's going to be too loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah, there's going to be too many people. <laughs> there's going to be too much commotion. And it's going to be too raucous. And as she says, the grandchildren are involved and I hope they're rehearsing. Uh, she also was a wonderful Shakespearean actress, you know, and um, and she wants the grandchildren to do the job, right? And I said, well, they better because, by gosh, if they don't, you'll be all over them. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, it's not very often. Well, there have been a few, uh, and I said to and I said to her her sons, I said, well, I usually say I stop short of the seventy six trombones, and then her son looked at me and he said, oh, but. My son is a trombonist, uh, and <laughs> so I guess it's not going to work. And I said, well, you know, during COVID, everything had to happen outside the window. And I said, you know, you can open the window, and he can, he can be out there on Brunswick Street, and he can play his trombone. I'm sure the Brunswick Avenue will love it. So he said, I'll have to talk to him about that. But, you know, I mean, this is... A celebration of life that is absolute magic, as far as I'm concerned. What what a memory to bestow on people. What a memory to leave behind. Where do you fall these days spiritually? Um, in uh, in has this uh, affected your your perspective and I guess um, so I grew up loosely Catholic and then became sort of uh, obnoxiously atheist as a teenager <laughs> and uh, um, and then sort of reading philosophy and, and sort of started to become much more appreciative of spiritual perspective and even my own Catholic background I think uh, any faith tradition um, you know, taking it metaphorically, not not literally. There can be a lot of meaning, and and and. But also from a sort of a neuroscience perspective, the the you know faith changes our phys- physiology. It's it glues us together. It gives us way sort of rituals to to bring us through tra- transitions, and then and then even through psychedelics now learning. Um, you know Andrew Weil and his panpsychism that you know maybe you know there's there's moral than than this material reality and 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 science actually doesn't explain everything and there's you know things things are much more complicated and interesting. I'm 
I'm wide open at this point, um, but I'm I'm curious where where you fall and how how this all has sort of played out in you uh, in, in influenced you. Yeah. I actually think um, I actually think we live on in memory. Uh, but again, I and and when I say memory, I am I am talking generational memory. Um, I think we have been incredibly blessed and incredibly lucky, you and me, um, to have been born in America. But I think if I look at the entire history of what got America to be America, um, where is the flotsam and jetsam? It all kind of comes down to happenstance and luck at base. Um, but aren't we incredibly lucky? And I actually think in terms of philosophical treatises and ritualistic practices, I, I think humankind has had to kind of create inventions of story to help us understand, to connect to place higher values and higher meaning than just survival. So I, I, I take a very long perspective on humanity here. I don't necessarily think humanity is good. I think humanity can be very lucky if they are so fortunate to be able to create ritual, to be able to craft and express ideas to be able to express themselves in art and aren't we enriched beyond belief because of it, you and I but aren't we incredibly lucky to exist how we exist here and I think you only have to look at India and China and nations where thousands die at a time I think you only have to look at bloodbaths and and mass killings and genocide to realize just how incredibly lucky we are. <laughs> I agree. We are incredibly lucky. And um, I think the work that you do and have done teaches sort of an appreciation of, of what, you know, th this is all, you know, a fleeting moment. We, we get to be here and be yeah. creative and tiny grains things. of sand in the cosmos. I love the cosmos in in terms of psychedelic psychotherapy, uh, in terms of ketamine. If if the creation of of majesty in your brain from ketamine takes you into the cosmos, what a wondrous thing that is! It's wondrous. Um, if it kind of brings you out uh, into a better place in terms of how you are with other people in your community, um, in, your, in your going out and your coming. I mean, the rituals of the church I love. The music of the church I love. Symphonic music I love. Poetry I love. Visual representations I love. There is 
magic in all of that. So if all of that is, is the cosmos, if all of that can be brought forward and move us beyond ourselves and bring us back to a place where we have kindness uh, and interest, I mean, kindness and interest. I mean, the amazing thing about our time at Menla, uh, for me, was was just the connection, this human being to human being connection that was magical and powerful and stunningly surprising to me. That I agree. I could be yeah, so to, old to be, and see it happen. <laughs> you know, 52 and, and to make a whole new group of friends like that is it, it just doesn't happen as an adult to be like uh, connected with people and meeting and having in-depth conversations oh yeah i mean no it was magic moments and and when i talk about it now because i'm very very happy to talk about what i think the experience was and just how uh meaningful it was to be with 30 really highly trained professionals um and to kind of just find somewhere in all of of that respect something way more than respect you know feeling and connection and love and care i mean my goodness um it's astounding Dirk. it was astounding to see it i f- i feel like i felt that in you that sort of coming in with um maybe skepticism and and then at the end i uh, being connected with your your body and in spirit in a different, oh, yeah. in a little bit of a different way. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, I was, I was staggered because I am, I am, uh, in my own nature, I'm quite skeptical. I'm not very trusting. I'm not very expecting um, the kinder soul of human beings. You know, I. I would say, no, I'm very kind of guarded. I'm guarded at what I give off, in fact, even. But, um, and that's part of training. I mean, that's, that's part of being a physician, too. You know, your, your mm. job is to button it up and get on with it, not, not spill the beans and not spend a lot of time wallowing in your own emotion. You know that. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was truly a rem- <laughs> Now you're laughing. <laughs> but... It was so different, let eh? me ask you. Um, it was it was it was a special time, and I'm still processing it, and it's still sort of rippling around in me. Um, couple rapid fire questions. I want to just give you some sort of sentence completions. And so, uh, um, uh, so according to to me, Jean Marmorero. I'm not saying your name. Marmorero. Um, the Marmorio. meaning of. The meaning of life is? To make a contribution. To try and make where you are better than, than when you came into it. Um, and to pass on memories, good memories, to your friends and family. Nice. And the most meaningful thing that I did yesterday was? Oh, God. <laughs> Dirk, I don't even remember yesterday. <laughs> um, I started tackling the rewrite of my book, which I had been procrastinating on. So, yeah, that was the most meaningful thing I did. Get down to work. Yeah. 
Okay. And if I come to you and I say, Gene, I am having a crisis in meaning. I feel like my life lacks meaning. The most important thing or the first next thing that I should do is? What I should do or you should do? Your, your advice to me if I'm coming to you asking for help with meaning. Oh, uh, we need to talk. We just need to sit and talk with each other. The meaning will come if you can talk and listen. Mm-hmm. And after I am... The, dust. <laughs> dust. The thing that I would most like to be remembered for is... That I was kind when needed. Because mm-hmm. that's a deep goal of mine, because I don't think I am, particularly. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it. That's a big one. That's a really important one to others and to ourselves, right? Yeah. I think it's. I think it's the... If I look at, if I think of my mother, um, and I think of everything she was and everything she meant, and boy, she was a strong woman um, and an enduring woman. But she always tells the story of how um, she had a, a really, really bad falling out with her brother, who, who basically kind of um, took over the farm from their mother and then kind of locked their mother away. So she, she was kind of basically you know, not even able to use the house that was her home. Um, and and there was a tremendous rift in the family because of that. But when he was in the hospital dying, my mother went to visit him. And she went to visit to tell him how sorry she was for his illness. And she wanted to just express that to him. And I thought, boy, that act of kindness for somebody who basically had been um, not only mean-spirited, but my mother stood at the bottom of his bed and and gave him sympathy. And Mm -hmm. I always have thought that that was an act of kindness. I'm not sure I could have done that. But my mother did, and and she was very clear. It relieved her of having to kind of carry bad feelings forward for the rest of her life about his behavior and how he had treated their mother. Mm-hmm. Stands out as just a real watershed moment for me. It's a nice example. Yeah. Yeah. Another question, if you um, could share a message with, you know, this is sort of the Tim Ferriss billboard question, yeah, if, if you could yeah. get a big <laughs> message out there, mm-hmm. um, do you have a, a message that you would... It's one, you know, it's the one I hear from from everybody I help to die because it's always the same message to the family, um, and it always is. It is always look after one another. It is about that kindness thing, um, but I I hear it so many times, and I always think when you have got only one thing to say to everybody who's around you, and you're about to kind of leave the earth, and what comes out again and again and again is they, you know, they look at the family and they look at the room and they say, look after one another. It's got to have tremendous meaning because I hear it all the time. So I hope I can say it when it comes my time to look after one another. 
So, yeah, so this is really great to, to be able to have this conversation. And I think there's a lot that we learn about how to live. And uh, I just, I was really struck by your, the, the poem at the beginning of your book. And uh-huh. I just wanted to, to maybe Wild read geese. it, the, the Mary Oliver poem, yep. Wild Geese. Uh, you don't. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Yeah. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the ra- and the ra- of the rain are moving across landscapes over the prairies and the deep trees the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. things. Yeah. Yeah. The line that really always smacks me in the face Tell me your despair and I will tell you mine. Because that's the ultimate sharing. You know, the grief, the sadness, the failure. It is a sharing. But it's all done in that wonderful background of the world goes on and you will only have to find your place in it. Because you're very small in this great, great landscape. So... I love it. Beautiful. Thank you so much for talking with me. 